everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here. And I first want to say, um, Mike, I do miss the uh, fro. That was, that was awesome. Uh, this morning, um, I'll be reading the scripture for today, 2 Samuel 13, uh, verses 23 to 39. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Belhazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us, all, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Absalom's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young men who kept watch lifted their eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmiah, the son of Aminahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are here today because you love us more than we can comprehend. You love us so much that you let your son die for our sins, for all the dumb and disobedient things we have done and thought and said, past, present, and even the future. We would literally be lost and eventually in hell, separated from you, if it were not so. Therefore, we thank you. We thank you for your, your patience. We thank you for your love and your kindness and your holiness. We thank you that you take pleasure in our knowing you and our loving and serving you. Your word says that the only way to come to you is through your son Jesus and what he has done and doing for us. It is, so it is our desire that everyone here would be called to you and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We know that there is nothing we can do. 
We can't ever be good enough. There is no attaining or achieving heaven because that it indicates that it would, it would be our effort that made it happen. So no amount of do-gooding or effort on our part will save us. Even though it is true that we can improve our situation and get ahead in a worldly sense through our own merits and hard work, but to paraphrase what Solomon said, it's just really all meaningless and fleeting in the end. So what really does the accumulation of stuff or position or stat status matter once you've died? Salvation is a gift. It is given to us. So please help us to always remember what a precious gift it is and help us to live in a way that reflects that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it trains us for every good work. Father, today, as we come to the second part of the story we looked at a couple of weeks ago, I pray for your help. Help me to be clear. Help me to speak the truth. Father, I pray that your spirit would take the truth and illumine our hearts and change us for Jesus' sake. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we return this week to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, as you just heard Brian reading there. The text for this morning really presents Act 2 of the drama that we began to look at a couple of weeks ago. In the first half of chapter 13, we saw that the author records this disturbing account of the rape of David's daughter Tamar by her half-brother. They shared the same father, David, but not the same mother and the heir to David's throne, Amnon, is the one who raped Tamar. Amnon was inspired by a plot devised by his clever friend and cousin, Jonadab, who you also heard in this morning. Amnon present, pretends to be sick. He asks his father, Jonadab, he asks his father, would you allow my sister, my half-sister Tamar, to come over and feed me by hand after she has prepared this food in my presence. Well, as strange as that request sounds, David does agree to it. Tamar obeys her father, which results in Amnon seizing her and assaulting her. Amnon then makes Tamar's fate even worse by kicking her out of his house and completely cutting her off from any contact. And in that culture, that left her in the spot of a desolate woman childless and without the hope of marrying. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, next in line to the throne after Amnon, hated him for what he did to his sister. They shared David and the same mother, Maacah. Now, this next act in this perverse drama that Brian read is when Amnon is murdered by Absalom in vengeance for the rape of his sister. The main reason the author includes this story, as we saw with the first half of the story, is to show the fulfillment of God's promise to David back in chapter 12, verse 10. As a consequence of David's sins with Bathsheba, God tells David through the prophet Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own 
house. So all of chapter 13, and then of course as we get into chapter 14 and Absalom's revolt, all of it, the main purpose is to show that this curse that is placed on David has begun to be fulfilled. There is a pattern to God's justice with David that the author wants us to see. David's sexual sin with Bathsheba is paralleled by the raping of of Tamar by Amnon. The author wants us to see that correspondence. In the second part of the story that we read today, the murder of of Amnon by Absalom, God is bringing down on David from his own family the consequence of his murder. So, In David's sin, there is sexual sin and there is murder. And in these first two stories in chapter 13, there is sexual sin and there is murder. And the author wants us to see that correlation because it's his fulfillment of what he did. That's the main point of the story. Perhaps the most natural way to organize how to best communicate this is by focusing on each of the major characters one by one. So let's start with David here, King David. In these two consecutive episodes in chapter 13, David finds himself both times brought into plots that result in horrible consequences for himself and for his family. First, let's see how he was fooled by his son Absalom in the same way that he had earlier been fooled by his son Amnon. Each of the king's sons evidently owned some livestock. Absalom owned sheep, and it's sheep shearing time. Now, this was a very big job, and it would especially be big for someone who owned a lot of sheep like the king's son. It required many workers, and so along the times, it came to be a a tradition that the sheep shearing time coincided with feasts, because this way was a way of getting more people to come and help you shear your sheep, to have a big blowout of a party that lasted for a few days. We know from verse 23 that Absalom had invited all the king's sons to this party. He then invites David and David's servants to go as well, and David declines because he doesn't want to burden Absalom. Now, that probably would have been a predictable response from David, especially from someone like Absalom, who knew his father pretty well. If the king were to go to a party with his royal retinue, which they always brought with them, that would have greatly increased the expense. And so it probably was a safe bet that Absalom knew that David would decline the invitation. After David had given his blessing to Absalom, verse 26 says, Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. It's clear that all the sons require the permission of David in order to do this, even though they're all clearly at this point, or most of them anyway, are adults. David obviously smells that something is amiss with this request to let Amnon go to the shearing. And we know that he is right to be wary because Amnon is right now, I should say Absalom, is setting David up. He was taking this calculated risk that David would refuse to go by himself to the shearing. But then, knowing that it's going to be harder for David to refuse him a second time, Absalom asks him for the person that he's really interested in, Amnon. 
Now David surely knew that Absalom had taken Tamar to live with him after Amnon assaulted her. He would also have known the loyalty that Absalom, Tamar's full brother, would have had to her, and he's not foolish enough to think that Absalom just forgot about that. David's hesitation here is the author's way of revealing that David was aware of these dynamics between Amnon and Absalom. Otherwise, there would have been no reason for him to hesitate. Probably against his better judgment, David agrees to let Absalom pressure him, and then he agrees. The author writes this in a way to draw attention to what this duping of David has in common with the incident with Tamar. One commentator puts it well. He says, like Amnon, Absalom had deceptively manipulated the king into ordering one of his children into a trap. Then in the midst of a meal, he had overpowered the sibling and carried out a violent and wicked fantasy at their expense. Do you see there's similarities, a lot of similarities structurally between what happened with Tamar and what is happening in this incident with Amnon. Robert Alter says it this way, Absalom is making David his go-between to lure Amnon to his death, just as Amnon made David his go-between to lure Tamar to her violation. See, there's parallels between these two accounts. You have to wonder if for the rest of David's life, if David didn't live in regret of falling for what was basically the same ploy repeated twice in succession. David was unknowingly, unknowingly the authority who gave permission for two of his children to be brutalized by two of his other children. Another moment in this incident that doesn't reflect very well on David is this second encounter he has with Jonadab. Now, we saw last time that Jonadab was a friend as well as a cousin of Amnon, and of course all of David's boys devised the wicked plot for Amnon to violate Tamar. That was Jonadab's function in the last story. He's the one that came up with this wicked plot for Amnon to get access to Tamar. We see a bit of a different dynamic in this second act, though, as David interacts with Jonadab. After the murder of Amnon, somehow a false report circulates that all of David's sons have been killed. We don't know the source of that. The text doesn't tell us. But somehow, a rumor had gotten out that all of David's sons has been killed. Jonadab knows this is not the case, and so he seeks to reassure David in verse 32. Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now that's an, that's an astonishing statement on a couple levels, but as it relates to David, the king here discovers that Jonadab had known for quite some time of Amnon's intent, of Absalom's intention to kill Amnon for the rape of Tamar. Okay? Jonadab had known about this intention for a long time. Yet when Jonadab tells David of his prayer knowledge of this, David says nothing. Just as he said nothing in the previous story when he discovers the rape of Tamar. The fact that this long-intended desire of Absalom was known by Jonadab means that Abnon's murder might have been prevented. 
you would have assumed that a bold man like David, and he certainly has been a bold man, would have strongly questioned Jonadab as to why he didn't make Absalom's hateful desire to kill the crown prince known to him. Why didn't you tell me this if you knew this? David would never have allowed Amnon and Absalom to be together at Absalom's house if he had known that this dynamic existed for sure. We know he suspected it. Jonadab had the goods on him. But again, David says nothing. This does not reflect well on David. A final revelation of David's weakness is in the last part of the chapter. David fails in his duty as the king here. Because as the chief judicial authority in the nation, he fails to bring justice to the murderer of the crown prince of Israel. We can't just let David off here. We can't give him a pass because Absalom is his son. It is an abuse of power on David's part to shield Absalom from the consequences of his murder that according to law was deserving of the death penalty. God had the power to release David from the law when he murdered Uriah, but David did not have any such power to effectively pardon his son Absalom by not going and getting him. David clearly treats this whole matter as an intra-family squabble instead of a crime against God's law requiring legal redress. The way David handles this would have been wrong for the head of any Jewish family, but it even more was wrong for the head of the royal family because the royal family belonged to the entire nation. And as we'll see next chapter, what affected the royal family affected the entire country. In the rape of Tamar, David did nothing to discipline his son Amnon when he assaulted Tamar. His only response was to become enraged. And here at the murder of Amnon, David again fails to act against a guilty perpetrator. His only recorded response is to be very grieved. If this had been anybody other than Absalom that planned and executed the death of Amnon, he would have been immediately executed. As for Absalom, he leaves this area, arrives in Gesher, about 75 miles east of Jerusalem, with no one even in pursuit. David's failure in his duty to apprehend the killer of the crown prince is one that he's going to pay dearly for in the next chapters. Now let's turn to David's son, Absalom. Absalom is David's third son. We don't know what happened to David's second son. We just know that Absalom, because of probably the, the second son's death, is the next in line for the crown. We see in verse 23 that Absalom waits two full years before he makes his move to bring retribution on Abnon for raping his sister. That tells us a lot about this man. Absalom is patient. He doesn't just handle this in an off-the-cuff manner. He's cold, he's calculating, and he's ruthless. Absalom is enraged with Amnon at the rape of his sister, but unlike his father David, for whom the passage of time tends to reduce his passion, Absalom's desire for vengeance does not diminish with the passage of two years. He hides it well, however. Verse 22, Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So Absalom has a consummate poker face here. He's able to disguise his anger for indifference. He spoke nothing good or bad to his brother. 
You would never have known from how Absalom related to Amnon that he was intent upon killing him. Absalom has ice in his veins. He has a goal to kill Amnon for his rape of his sister Tamar. And even if it takes years, he is willing to wait until just the right opportunity comes along for him to accomplish that goal. Absalom is callous. He's manipulative. He's not someone you want on the other side from you. Absalom is not just vengeful, though. He's also very shrewd, and we'll see this later in the next story as well. He waits until an opportunity came, until it would not seem at all out of place for him to ask David and his brothers to come to his house. Okay? This was a crucial part of this plan because at his house, Absalom would have all the advantages and all the resources he need, needed to absolutely succeed in killing Amnon. He would have had all of these servants, and there would have been a large number of servants on hand, would have, which would have meant that he had all the muscle that he needed to do whatever he wanted to do. The reason the other sons of David flee the scene of the crime so quickly is because they knew that Absalom in his house has enough resources to be able to have killed all of them. They knew that. That's why they got the heck out of there. Another sign of Absalom's shrewdness is that he knew that once David refused his larger request for the king to attend the celebration, that would make David find it much harder to also deny a much more modest request. And it would have been natural for Absalom to ask, well, if the king can't come, can the crown prince attend in his place? See, he masterfully sets David up here. And because David is more concerned about not ruffling feathers or rocking the boat in the family than he is about acting prudently to protect his son Amnon from his brother, who he knows has every reason to pose a threat to him, instead, he caves and he lets him go. Absalom has clearly had a lot of time to think about what he was going to do. And he, like Jonadab in the case of Amnon's rape of Tamar, he actually pulls the king into his plan to kill his son. We get a taste of the kind of man that Absalom is and his instructions to his servants in verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. See, he's got all of this figured out. He will wait until Amnon is intoxicated to the degree where he is completely unable to defend himself. With all of his resources, that was probably not necessary, but he's leaving nothing to chance here. He wants to get Amnon a little drunk. He ensures the plot will not go amiss because he takes the control of when this is going to happen upon himself. He knew Amnon. He'd seen him drunk before. He knew when he was unable to defend himself, and he says, you wait until I give the word and then kill him. And then he says this, be courageous and be valiant. What an absurdity. <laughs> he wants his servants to see themselves as courageous and valiant warriors on a crucial and dangerous mission. Well, how much courage does it require to kill a surprised drunk when you vastly outnumber him? How valiant is it to trap a man like a bird in a cage before murdering him? 
It's not like there's any chivalry at all involved in Absalom's defense of Tamar's honor. Absalom doesn't challenge Amnon to a duel, fair and square, one man prepared and ready against another. No, Absalom orders his lackeys to ambush and murder a drunk. The point is that Absalom was leaving nothing to chance. This was a totally foolproof plan. Abnon is a dead man the minute he puts his foot on Absalom's property. As you would expect of a plan two years in the making, Absalom is leaving nothing to chance. It's ruthless, it's deceptive, it's manipulative, and it is murderously efficient. After the crime, Absalom has no intention of sticking around, and as soon as the deed is done, his brothers immediately ride off toward Jerusalem while Absalom flees in the other direction. He goes to his wife's family in Geshur. Specifically, he goes to the son of his father-in-law, who is the king of Geshur. He knew that David wouldn't risk war with Geshur by trying to apprehend his son-in-law. Absalom's escape to safety goes exactly as planned as well. The only downside for Absalom is he's stuck in Gesher, away from his people. But he has a plan for that too, which he's going to enact later on. At the end of this day, I'm sure that Absalom felt deeply satisfied. His incestuous brother Amnon is dead. His desolate sister Tamar is avenged. And he guilty of fratricide, was safe within the confines of his in-law's house in Gesher. All is good for Absalom. The third and the final major player in this drama was also involved in Amnon's rape of Tamar. As we said, we've seen him before, and that is this Jonadab fellow. Jonadab is the son of one of David's brothers. That means he was a cousin to all of the king's sons. Let's begin after Amnon is killed. That's when Jonadab appears in the story. Speaking of the king's other sons, the author says, while they, these other sons, were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Okay, this account raises some questions about Jonadab. First, we know that Jonadab is earlier described in the first half of the story as a friend of Amnon, the one who's now dead. Yet when Amnon is murdered, there is no evidence of any response you would expect from a friend of a murdered person. For instance, if Jonadab really knew about Absalom's murderous intentions toward Amnon, doesn't it make sense that he would have drilled into Amnon's head as a friend and cousin? Leave him alone. Don't have anything to do with him. You know he wants to kill you. If, that, if he'd done that, that would have rendered it impossible for Amnon to willingly make himself vulnerable and go to this party at Absalom's investigation. He didn't do that for his friend. It's also unlikely that with such a huge party, Jonadab, he's a member of the royal family, didn't know about this gathering of the brothers at the annual sheep shearing. 
That would have been very unusual for this to have not gone into Jonadab's consciousness. Yet there's no record of Jonadab pulling his friend aside and urging him not to go to Absalom's house. We have to remember that Jonadab is presented here as being absolutely as ruthless and clever as Absalom. That means that even if David didn't see the point, he didn't see through this plot to kill Amnon, it's very unlikely that Jonadab would have been oblivious to what was going on given his prior knowledge of Absalom's murderous hatred of Amnon. Also, where is the description, where is even the mention of Jonadab mourning for Amnon? The author reveals that the servants of David, who were not Amnon's friends, they mourned, but the only picture the author gives us of Jonadab is of an indifferent messenger to David. After it became clear that only Amnon was dead, verse 35 said, And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. He wants everybody to know that he was right, not these rumor mongers. And it's pretty clear that he reminds David of this in the hopes of garnering some favor. I was right, remember, king, and they were wrong. Don't you just want to throttle this guy? Now that we've looked at the story, what can we take away from it? First, we need to see big picture. Part of the reason why we go to the trouble of actually going through all of these stories is to help you See how Hebrew narrative is written. It's to help you when you're coming across these stories and you're reading through the Bible. You, you read through these incredibly well-written Hebrew narratives and we don't want you to miss anything. And an awful lot of these Hebrew narratives, you miss things if you don't know how they're written. Okay? Each detail that is included in these stories and each detail that is excluded is inspired by the Holy Spirit and they're important to the meaning of the story. What's in the story and what's not in the story. There are no wasted words in any one of these stories. And the hope is that when you read them in your devotional times, you too will see these things and start to ask questions to find a meaning in these stories that is much deeper than you would find if you just read it through in a cursory manner. You need to dig in and ask some of these questions. Why didn't Amnon mourn? Right? Why didn't, yeah, why didn't, why didn't John and Dad mourn for Amnon? Those are the kind of questions you need to ask. Second, as it relates to application, we've said before that David is perhaps the one man in the Old Testament who most clearly points to Jesus. And that's reflected in this title, the son of David. Jesus is never called the son of Moses or the son of Elijah or the son of anybody else other than the son of God. He's referred to as the son of David. That was the messianic title he's granted. And yet in this section of 2 Samuel, we see that although David is clearly a type of Christ, he points forward to Jesus only very imperfectly. Think about two ways in this story that David does not at all reflect Christ-like qualities. First, David is easily duped by those close to him. In these two stories, Amnon, Jonadab, Absalom, they all fool David. First at the cost of Tamar's honor and then at the cost of Amnon's life. We're going to see more of David's lack of discernment in chapters to come. But contrast that with Jesus. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas, was also seeking to lure Jesus into a trap. 
The Pharisees were looking for someone on Jesus' inner circle to betray him because they know that they needed to get someone close to Jesus to deliver him to them. Judas was their mole, if you will, and at an opportune time, he sold Jesus out. But unlike David, Jesus was absolutely aware of everything that had been going on behind his back. At the Lord's Supper, we read in John 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. Okay, the point of that is to show us that Jesus is utterly sovereign over every detail detail of his betrayal and passion. He wants John and he wants Peter to know that he, he knew the identity of his betrayer, which means that he could have stopped this plot against him any moment he would have wanted to. He even gives permission for Judas to go to the place where he was going to betray him. That's sovereign control. Nobody's fooling Jesus in his crucifixion. Unlike David, Jesus could look right into your heart and know what you are thinking. We see Jesus knowing what his enemies were thinking many times in the Gospels. Let me just give you a few. In Matthew chapter 12, he's in dialogue with the Pharisees who had accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. Verse 25 tells us, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. He knew their thoughts. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals a paralytic and told him his sins were forgiven, verse 6 reveals, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Okay? Jesus reads the minds of those who opposed him. It's impossible to fool somebody when he can read your mind. Okay, In Luke's gospel, Jesus implies why he could read the hearts and minds of men. Jesus had been condemning those who loved money. And the Pharisees heard this and began ridiculing him. In Luke 16, 15, it said, And he, Jesus, said to them, You are those who justify yourself before man, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He says, God knows your hearts. And earlier it is said, I know what's in your heart. The point is, every time that Jesus reads someone's mind or reads someone's hearts, that is a testimony to his divinity, that he is God, because only God knows what's in a person's heart. Another contrast between David and Jesus brought out in these chapters is that in all this travail that he's experiencing, David is bearing the consequence of his sins. Now, the contrast 
As we said earlier, the main reason these incidents are included is to show that he's bearing the consequences of his sin. And that's a big difference from Jesus because Jesus, while David bore the consequences of his sins, Jesus bore the consequence of our sins. Jesus had no sin and therefore there were no consequences of his own to bear. The glorious truth of the gospel is what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is the truth that though Jesus had none of his own sins to bear, in obedience to the Father, he bore our sins as a substitute for all those who would believe in him to receive the punishment that they deserved. And the punishment for all sin is death. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. And he's speaking of eternal death there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The glory of the gospel is that for anyone who trusts in Christ, when Jesus was on the cross, he was bearing, or perhaps you should think about it as he was wearing your sins like a filthy garment. And in his mercy, God saw fit to punish his perfect son with the punishment our sins deserve, with the result that, for those who trust in Christ, we will never have to bear our sins. What a comfort it is to know that all of our sins were punished 2,000 years ago. That's substitutionary atonement. That's the most glorious truth in the universe. My sin was punished 2,000 years ago, all of it, even the sins I haven't yet committed, they're already punished. Our sins were punished 2,000 years ago, but there's more than that. Not only did Jesus wear the filthy garment of our sins, but he also gave us the radiant garment of his righteousness to wear. When God sees our lives, because a believer is united with Christ, he sees us not in our sin, but he sees us wearing the righteous robe of Jesus. We have to glory at this. If that truth seems like old hat to you because you've heard it since the time you were a kid, if that seems like it's a needless restatement of something you already know, you have a huge heart problem. The best news in the world, in the universe, is that Jesus came to take our punishment so that we would not receive the punishment our sins deserved. That is our song. That is our source of eternal joy. The saints in heaven will be praising God for that truth into eons through eternity. This should always strike us as astonishing and stimulate us to worship. If ever we come to the communion table and, not, and are not amazed by what we're celebrating, there's something wrong. There's lukewarmness in our soul. We must see the uniqueness of Christ and how he alone could bear our sins as the God-man, as the perfect son of David. May God give us the grace to daily delight in the good news of the gospel and David's greater son, Jesus, who loved us and died for us for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that we can see Jesus in the Old Testament through his types, in the ways that they do point to Jesus, and in the way that he is so superior to them. Father, we thank you that Jesus stands alone in the solitude of himself, the son of David from a messianic title, 
and yet he is God alone, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so God, as we come to the table, I pray that you would just thrill our hearts with the glory of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.